Are you sitting quite comfortably? Then I'll begin. Baker's Comics! Comic books. An art form early alive. We can rebuild them. We have the technology. With digital downloads and bookstore penetration, which sounds a bit rude, we can make them better than they were before. Better. Stronger. Here are your hosts, Andrew and Michael Leyland. Hello, everybody. Hello, everyone. Very good. Yeah. Like that. Welcome back to the show. It's good to be here, isn't it? It is. Always nice to it's be good here. good to be here in my own home. It is. It's lovely to be in our own home <laughs> yeah. for once, instead of being corralled down to Demanzo HQ British Division and <laughs> forced to do the show in front of him yeah, while right. he sits there with no pants on scratching himself. <laughs> I find that quite off-putting. Especially when he tells us to record slower. Yeah, I'm not being rude when I turn my back <laughs> and record with my back to him. I just, I can't, you know. I don't want to see that scrotum, quite frankly. Golf socks with... Uh, <laughs> uh, gym socks with golf balls in it. Yeah. Yeah, anyway, should we just go straight into the email section? Oh no, have we done anything this way? It's been a good week for telly, Flash. Yeah. You don't watch Flash? No. You don't watch the Flash, yeah. No. Hellblazer started. It did. No, it isn't. It's called Constantine, isn't it? I like to call it Hellblazer. I like to call it Hellblazer. I like to pretend. Shall we say what we thought about Constantine? Oh, no, we don't have to, do we? No, we don't. We did an entire other show about it. We did. There is a Palace of Glittering Delights, all about what we thought, our initial gut impression (laughs) Mm -hmm. of the first episode of Constantine. It's not critical, heavy analysis. We watched it, we came in here, we pressed record. It was what did we think of our initial reaction to it. Didn't we? Yeah. And that was it. So we will mention it no more. No. We will instead mention Mark Lax, who has emailed into the show, with an email that says, Yay, the 90s! Wow. I'm glad that he was excited about it. Yeah. I'd be quite upset if he wasn't excited Unless about it's it. Unless yay, the 90s. <laughs> you think it's a sarcastic yay, the 90s? Could be. <laughs> yeah, well, we do live with you, so. Hello, Leylands! Hello, Mark! I thought I'd write in as the 90s series came to a close. Listening to the Vertigo episode brought back a lot of fond memories. At the time, I was experimenting with different genres. <laughs> oh! Other than the superhero books, and Vertigo came at just the right time. While I didn't get involved with all the series, there were some truly unique comics that woke up an industry that had become stagnant. Uh, while I was just a casual fan of the X-Men, the whole mutant movement bored me to death. To be truly honest, at the time of the exodus from Marvel to Image, McFarlane and Eric Larson's work were the only ones I was familiar with. I'd seen a Lee cover or a Lee-filled drawing, but not being on board with the mutants, the Spider-Man books were my only frame of reference during this tumultuous period. However, before Image debuted, I did become familiar with the other creators' work. I had no interest in Youngblood, after checking Lee-filled, nor did I care for Wildcat. I collected Spawn for a while, but got bored, and thought Savage Dragon had great art, but I couldn't get into the story. That and the fact that I truly disliked Leifield McFarlane and Larson intensely made me drop Image altogether. I was curious in the beginning, as many comics fans were, but just couldn't read about them anymore. My take on all this is that the Image founders, or how they're called around here, crybabies, were just a bunch of egotistical jerks who, whilst they had some talent, were hacks, mostly. 
especially Liefeld. It seems the company, no matter how many books they sold, did not really put out good comics until a few of the founding fathers left. I know I'm being harsh and I don't care. I never liked the egotistical jerks then, and with the exception of Lee, I don't like them now. Normally I'm a very pleasant person. <laughs> Thanks, Mark. Well, you're certainly entitled to your opinion, Mark. I don't think we were quite that harsh in our critique of the uh, the comics, because we never critique the person. No. I think. Rob Leafield may be a really, really nice guy. But his work's really, really nice. Yeah. It's, you know, whatever. If you like it, fair play to you. Mm-hmm. you know, we are not here to tell you that you are wrong for liking Rob Leafield. If that floats your boat, you by all means, you go and buy that stuff. I'm just not on that boat. No. I'm, I'm on the island yeah, yeah, that yeah. the boat is fleeing from. Just stood there going, hey, what about me? I'm, I'm here... I'll 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 be over here reading preacher. <laughs> Rob Stubbs emailed in. We've not heard from Rob for a while. Hey Rob, hello to the most important Mrs. Leyland and the two lesser important Mr. Leylands and the other Mr. Leyland from your long absent American friend. Are we lesser important? But does or maybe there's a lesser important Mrs. Mrs. Leyland <laughs> and two more important Mr. Leyland. That's very true. In an alternate dimension, yeah, the lesser important one put out the show. Yeah. Your mum probably does a show about whatever hobby she's into this week. That's what she does when we're in a parallel universe. (laughs) (laughs) And it's it's episode one of a different show every single week to represent her eclectic tastes. (laughs) Or how she goes for a different hobby every month. (laughs) It's a good job she's not here. I took a break from the comic world. Why, why would you do that? In the past week, I've gone from the dreadful birthday dear Joker to the end of Tide to the 90s to be completely caught up with the show. Some of my highlights in this mass consumption. The coverage of Ghost Rider was hysterically funny. (laughs) I'm glad you found it hysterically funny. We found it hysterically painful. (laughs) Do you know what? I still think that made the funniest synopsis we've ever done. I'm not sure if it was worth reading it. No, no, I'm not sure that it was worth the time. I honestly, I think I said in the show, I tried writing that three times. Yeah. I tried writing it seriously three times, and three times I was just like, I can't do this. This is crap. We didn't do that with the Liffield comics, so they've got that going for it. Yeah, yeah. At no point did they ever make me go, this is utter bullshit, like the Ghost Rider comic did. Yeah. So fair play to him. Maybe that's because Liffield didn't have the attention span to contradict himself and to have plot holes and stories that made sense. So he just had no attention span and didn't have a story. Well, he didn't have a story. I think we, yeah. we quite clearly demonstrated that there was no story there. But it had lots of energy. It had tons of energy. <laughs> Oh, Rob Leffield, we love you. Number two, the Jonah Hex coverage. Jonah appears in the opener of Return of the Fearsome Fangs, Brave and the Bold, and the main story of Duel of the Double Crosses. Oh, episodes. Right, not the comics. The episodes of Brave and the Bold. Right, I see. Number three, Luke Cage, Hero for Hire, Sweet Christmas. Cage's favourite expression. Number four, Seven Soldiers of Victory. Actually, sounds pretty good. Congratulations to all the hard work the, the younger Mr. Leyland put in. Thank you. Number five, The Flash issue, introducing Bart Allen and Green Lantern. Did you like him? <laughs> I like that he just wrote that. <laughs> Did you like it? Number six, Preacher, I bought and read when they originally came out. Sorry, I don't have a seventh, as there was a lot of stuff I was sort of met about. I sounded so horrible, I'm glad I blotted it from my mind or never read it. I can't believe you didn't blot Ghost Rider from your mind. 
I can explain Professor Warren's actions. He clones Gwen because he loves her like a daughter, so to provide her with the proper love, he clones Peter later on in case the real one rejects her. That eliminates all the stupidity that comes later on. Kind of makes sense within the confines of the story, but very little made sense in the confines of that story mm-hmm. when you actually sat down about it. What if Marvel had bought Jim Lee's wife a plane ticket? Image doesn't form or has much less impact as he stays with Marvel, changing comics history entirely. That would be an excellent what if, wouldn't it? Could be, yeah. Jim Lee's wife had been bought a plane ticket, he would never have left. Yeah. He wouldn't be doing Batman now. He wouldn't. But he doesn't do Batman now, does he? Or he wouldn't have done he Batman. He wouldn't have done Batman, he wouldn't have done Superman for tomorrow. Yeah. Oh, that would have been a blessing. Wouldn't would it? it? Bat- All-Star Batman wouldn't exist. Yeah. Which is a shame, because that's quite funny. We should cover that. We should. Just for crack? Yeah. I think so. I eagerly await Michael's new podcast, The Out House of Shiny Insights, as a companion piece to the Palace of Glittering Delights. Yes. <laughs> I quite like that title. Yeah, I'm working on it, but I'm still uh, trying to steal enough shekels to buy a recording device. You can borrow mine. Okay. I don't mind. I'm sure there's lots of stuff I'm forgetting, like the horribleness of Liffield's art, Forever Evil, having the more interesting material than the side issues, the lack of an interesting story in Hush, and the ploys of naked money grabs that wounded the comics industry, perhaps fatally. But I'm a far more positive person now, looking for the good and not the bad. I'm shocked that you never saw Gummy Bows. <laughs> We're not, no. quite frankly. But uh, I can't believe he sent us a link to a complete episode of the Gummy Bows. You know, if this was a Christmas episode, we'd click on that link and just do a commentary, wouldn't we? Yeah. But it's not, so we're not. Until next time. Oh, go on. If they get eaten at the end of the show. The gummy bears? Yeah. That'd be a bit mean for children's cartoons, wouldn't it? You eat gummy bears. You do, that's true. And what if they did, like, a a Hunger Games Battle Royale type gummy bears show? (laughs) And they had to survive, (laughs) and his hands reach down and pick them up? I don't think the gummy bears are quite as photogenic (laughs) as J-Law. But, you know... And although you'd want to eat J-Lo, wouldn't you? Well. Anyway, your pal, American pal, <laughs> Rob, I read those in the wrong order, Robert Louis Stubbs Jr. Thank you, Robert. It's nice to hear from you again. It's good to have you back. Chris Franklin emailed in Red Velvet. They wore red <laughs> velvet. I've not sung for a while. Yeah, the Street to DVD That's sequel. the Street to <laughs> The Red Shoe Diaries version <laughs> yeah. with Matt LeBlanc. <laughs> Hello Leyland, hello Christopher It's just me, I swear Cindy's not typing this with me dictating over her shoulder I can barely get her to read my notes for Supermates Plug, after all, I like that I like that he plugged his own show in his email Very clever, very sneaky, very under the radar I like it, it's good Velvet sounds interesting I've always liked Brubaker's and Epting stuff I see what Michael is saying about Epting's work being stiff It is, but he's so technically savvy I tend to overlook all that His storytelling is solid and the realism he brings Makes you feel like you are reading a photo novel Kind of like Alex Ross with pencil and ink instead of paint The idea of Miss Moneypenny being more than she appears to me Is an appealing one and rife for a spin-off franchise But I can't understand why some competing cable network Didn't gobble Velvet up as a series once Brubecker walked From those who would have gutted it Sounds pitch perfect for FX, Showtime, etc Sounds like you're taking some martial arts or defence classes Or perhaps you're training to become a master vigilante Andy To prowl the rooftops at night seeking justice You have to do something when the show ends, right? I don't think I'll be prowling anything with this knee (laughs) Quite frankly. Looking forward to your discussion of Marvel vs. DC, or DC's vs. Marvel, or Mullet, Superman vs. Ben Riley, whichever you want to call it. That's an odd time capsule of a comic series. I think JLA Avengers did it much better. Chris, well, it's funny you should mention JLA Avengers, Chris, isn't it? Mmm. Mm. Mm. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink, <laughs> say no more. 
is all we're going to say on that score. Luke Giaconetti is emailed in. Images everything. Thanks a lot, Andre Agassi. Andy Blood and Mike Eel. <laughs> EAL's got, got yeah, like full stops and like wildcats. Very good. What does EAL stand for? Um, entertaining and late. Okay, yeah, yeah. Always. Something yeah. like that. Ergonomically and left field. Okay. Uh, erotically anti-libertarian. <laughs> that works? I have no idea what that is. <laughs> I can't believe it took me three guesses to come up with erotic though. No, erotic ass licker. How did you find that one? <laughs> oh, four guesses before we went down the smut route. <laughs> PG-13, I didn't actually swear. Yeah, okay. so that's perfectly acceptable. Luke begins his email. The image launch was a touchstone of my youth. Being shortly after I got into comics for reals, this was a huge deal for me as a 12-year-old kid, first having his eyes open to the comics world. I remember the excitement and anticipation in the pages of Wizard and Comic Shop News, which in those pre-internet days were comics bibles to me, so I remember this portion of the 90s very well. Oddly enough, of these three launch titles, I only ever bought Spawn. I never bought into the Liefeld hype and was not into X-Force, so Youngblood never made any sense to me. Luke, we read it and it didn't make any sense to us. Yeah. <laughs> Luke continues, when there was a little hill on the cover to issue one to hide everyone's feet, the writing was kind of on the wall. I was interested in Wildcats, but ended up passing on it because being 12, I only had so much comics money to spend. But Spawn was a no-brainer. Venom was my favourite character and Todd McFarlane had helped create him, so into the pull bag it went. I enjoyed Spawn quite a bit and read it for many years to a pre-teen or young teen. That book read as mature and edgy, which helped it tremendously. And the mystery aspects of how Al Simmons came to this point in his life, after life, and the countdown every time he used his powers were intriguing. I do want to speak briefly about Spawn issue 10, written by Dave Sim and illustrated by McFarlane, which addresses the idea of creator-owned versus work-for-hire. Andy and I will have to agree to disagree on this one. He called that one the most pretentious comic he's read until Moore's 1963. But honestly, if anyone in comics is allowed to rail for self-publishing against work-for-hire, it's Dave Sim. The man literally wrote the book on comic self-publishing, the Cerberus Guide to Self-Publishing, and is a true believer in his cause. So while the idea of Todd McFarlane, corporate zillionaire, drawing this book is anathema, Dave Dave Sim writing it is perfectly fine. He's paranoid, sure, but just because he's paranoid doesn't mean he's wrong. Just my take, though, rant over. I think my problem with that was more the McFarlane angle, Luke, rather than Dave Sim. McFarlane, as you pointed out, made a ton of money. An image from from Marvel's The Sean Howe book, Marvel's The Untold Story, it basically seems that image comes across as them just wanting more of the money. Yeah. Rather than any great creative ideal. And the, the, the line between art and commerce is, is a thin and tricky one. But the fact that Mr. made a shit ton of money off Spider-Man was then railing against corporate comics because he'd not made what he thought was a decent amount of money from them when it had still made him a millionaire yeah. seemed a little bit crass and hip- hypocritical to me. I've got no problem with the Dave Sim article. Uh, article. Angle. Sorry, not article. Um, which seems to be Luke's point. So in that case, we don't actually have a disagreement. Mm. Because he says, what about Todd McFarlane? What I think? That he made a lot of money from corporate comics. Yeah. So to so turn around and be hypocritical about it was what I thought was pretentious about it. You could just see Cod going, yeah, this will stick it to Marvel, <laughs> can't you? That's my take on it, anyway. 
Luke continues, the star of the image launched him was Jim Valentino's book Shadowhawk, which was a brutal anti-hero book, but Hawk's actions were met with revulsion and disgust. Was it the one where he cuts people's heads off? Yeah. The story goes that McFarlane, while a jerk, was no fool, and sought out Valentino to join Image in order to provide much-needed advice and guidance on indie publishing. Valentino also handled the crossover aspects of these early Image books the best. Spawn makes an appearance in issue 2, and Savage Dragon in issue 4, and these appearances are handled like they would have been in an 80s indie book, with credit given to the creator and done as a shout-out to his fellow Image guys. Valentino's strength as an indie guy is borne out later when the Valentino eventually became the publisher and guiding force of Image and it reinvented itself into what it is today. Also, fair play to him then, because mm-hmm. Image is one of the best publishers around. Image's perpetual lateness was the source of great many jokes back in the day. The worst offence from Leafield as far as lateness has got to be Deathmate Red. For those who may not remember, or choose to forget, Deathmate was a crossover between Image and Valiant, the company which was in many ways the real revolutionary comics output of the 90s. The crossover was six books, a prologue, then four standalone one-shots, and then an epilogue with each company handling half the load. The Valiant half of the book, prologue, yellow and blue, all came out on time as solicited. The Image books, black, red and epilogue, all shipped late, including Lifefield's red shipping after the epilogue. As it was, Bob Layton, then the Valiant EIC, literally flew to California and sat on Liefeld's doorstep until he finished his portion of the pencils for the prologue, which Liefeld then inked in a hotel room. If Bob Layton inked Rob Liefeld, those issues probably look good. Yeah. Less funny, though, was frequent butt of lateness jokes Wetworks, which took several years to ship its first issue. Later, it would be revealed that the reason why Wilts Potassio never did the boot was due to his sister having a severe illness, which made all of those jokes seem really cruel in retrospect. Yeah, the jokes about Wetworks, all right, I'll give you that, but, you know, shipping a book after the epilogue is shipped, that's funny. Yeah. My favourite 90s comics, as I was reading them, Alan Davis's run on Excalibur, Wade and Augustine's Flash... Boozy Ekinchen's Iron Man, Sandman Mystery Theatre, and Shadowhawk. Sandman Mystery Theatre, we read a lot of good things about that. Yeah. Because uh, I remember Alan Davis's run on Excalibur was cool. I love Wade, Wade's Flash. Boozy Ekinchen's Iron Man, I've got, like, the first 16 or so issues of that that I won on eBay for dirt cheap, mm. but I've not read them, so I may have to pick them up. Sandman Mystery Theatre, like we say, gets good press, and Shadowhawk, we've never read. Read the Sandman time, and that's it. Is that, yeah. is that, did Matt Wagner do that? Yeah. Yeah. I really enjoyed your retrospective on this formative era of comics, for me anyway. Between this series, The Silver Age, and those 70s shows, I feel that like you guys have covered quite a bit of the history of the comics median and done it with style, quality, and a sense of fun and excitement. Well, thank you very much, Luke. We very much appreciate that. Even when we disagree, Luke is very reasonable about it. Mm-hmm. Which is, uh, most of our listeners like that, though, aren't they? Yeah. I think we have a very good listener base. They all mm-hmm. seem quite smart guys. They do. And lovely. Mm-hmm. Every single one of them. Yeah. Even the ones who haven't sent us a present. <laughs> <laughs> Daniel Reese has emailed in. Uh, Nightwing the series, a relatively new listener to your show, enjoying every minute. Oh, thank you very much. I saw this Kickstarter some time ago and have not heard either one of you talk about it. I would love to hear your thoughts. They reached their goal and have already released episodes one and two of what looks to be pretty high production level. Episode three will be released on October 13th, which is gone as we record this. Mm-hmm. A Kickstarter project for Nightwing the series, which actually was quite interesting, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Oh, well, we thank you very much for that. Actually, was quite cool, wasn't it? A three-part miniseries centering around. They've made $34,000 of the 20000 goal. Brilliant. I wonder why he's blue. Is it so that DC copyrighted the red one, so they're using blue now? If you make a film like this for non-profit, they let you get away with it. 
Right. Sony, if you're making money out of it, that they don't let you do it. Anyway, go and check that, that Kickstarter trailer. That looks quite interesting, doesn't it? Anyway, thank you everyone who emailed in tonight. It's very much appreciated. We love hearing from you. We've tons of emails to get. Like, a page worth, haven't we? Yeah. Blimey, O'Reilly. So when I said email in, people did. Oh, yeah. Which is what we like. That's good. Anyway, we'll plug somebody's show like we always do. Format of the show is pretty much set by this point. Mm-hmm. And we will be back in a minute with 1987. Gag me with a spoon. <laughs> Why does that one make you laugh? It's just funny. It's just stupid. Yeah. yeah. Back in a minute. We gotta get out of this place. If it's the last thing we ever do. We gotta- In Country has re-upped for another tour and we've been reassigned. Now you can find this complete look at Marvel Comics The Nom on the Two True Freaks Network. So join me, Tom Panneries, for In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics The Nom, every two weeks at twotruefreaks.com. By 1987, the comics landscape was looking a little different to previously. Marvel was publishing even more titles than ever before, but very few of them would really be recognised today as classics. Tom DeFalco had been fired from Amazing Spider-Man due to a disagreement with the editor over the direction of the Hobgoblin storyline. John Byrne had quit the Fantastic Four and Marvel to work for DC. And Roger Stern was thrown under the bus by editor Mark Gruenwald in an Avengers letters page. There were an awful lot of star comics specifically aimed at a traditionally younger reader than normal, such as Kissy Fur, Heathcliff and Fraggle Rock. There also seemed to be more of an emphasis on franchises. Conan had three monthly titles, G.I. Joe had four, as did Spider-Man. X-Men had six, and it was clear Marvel, once the bastion of diversity, was simply milking the cash cows. There were bright spots. The norm started well with some excellent art by Michael Golden, as did Mark Gruenwald's run on Captain America, and Frank Miller returned to pen a miniseries centred around his popular Daredevil supporting character, Elektra. Peter David started his 15-year run on The Incredible Hulk, and some young guy named Todd McFarlane started making a splash on both that comic and The Amazing Spider-Man. Anusenti and John Romita Jr. had a memorable run on Daredevil, Michelini and Leighton returned to Iron Man, and Walt Simonson wrapped up his run on Thor. The Punisher finally got his own title, and Excalibur, the latest in the X-Men stable, launched with a splashy bookshelf edition. But even before the firing of editor-in-chief Jim Shooter, Marvel seemed rudderless. Looking at this year on Mike's Amazing World website, very little of it stands out. DC, by contrast, had an excellent 1987. If Marvel had made a concentrated effort to corner the kiddie market, DC went the other way and attempted to prove that comics were a viable art form for adults with titles like The Question, Swamp Thing, The Shadow and Watchmen. Batman Year One by Frank Miller was in many ways better than The Dark Knight Returns. The Crisis on Infinite Earths had also given a new lease of life to other characters, with Wonder Woman finally allowed to be interesting, thanks to a Ground Zero reboot by George Perez, and an all-new Justice League by Kevin Maguire, J.M. DeMatteis, and Keith Giffen. 
Wally West succeeded Barry Allen as The Flash, and new directions were set for Captain Marvel and Green Lantern. Green Arrow was revamped in a three-issue miniseries, The Longbow Hunters, which we've already covered, and new titles like Suicide Squad were launched to huge acclaim. The experimental feeling that Marvel had had in the early 80s now permeated the halls of DC. 1987 was Superman's year, though. In addition to being the first year of publication following a much-hyped reboot by John Byrne, the character would be given a new number one. Action Comics, also by Byrne, would become a team-up title with issue 584, and the comic formerly known as Superman would be renamed Adventures of Superman with issue 424. Over the year, the Man of Steel's impending 50th birthday would lead to appearances in other books like Hawkman and the Legion, annuals for all three regular comics, a comic adaptation of the movie Superman 4, a miniseries, The World of Krypton, and, just as the year closed, a trade paperback reprint of the Man of Steel miniseries and truly magnificent hardcover, the greatest Superman stories ever told. The random generator this week, eh, it wasn't that random. Kind of cheated, really, didn't Did I? Did you? Yes. I, throw me under the bus, dude. <laughs> We've already covered a lot of Superman from the late 1980s, normally focusing on John Byrne. However, a key component in the success of the rebooted Superman and a creator who would stick with this post-crisis version of the character for even longer than Byrne, was Jerry Ordway. Ordway was a long-time fan of Superman, even turning down a chance to work on Batman to take part in the character's reboot. His first issue was The Adventures of Superman issue 424, the first post-crisis issue, and named after the 1950s George Reeves TV show. Cover dated January 1987, the cover is simply gorgeous. As painted by Ordway, this reimagining of the cover to Superman issue 14 has Superman standing on what looks like a mountain overlooking Metropolis, which is odd as Metropolis doesn't have any mountains. There's a glorious sunset as Superman holds his arm out for an American eagle to land upon. The colours are gorgeous, the painted aspect really made it stand out, and if Ordway's intent was to stand out on the shelves this month against the other, more high-profile Superman comics, he more than achieved it. If you don't like that, there's something wrong with you. No, I really do. Honestly, though... Go on! It's the same mass as inside and outside, I just think the cover looks a bit more dated than the inside. Why? I'm not sure. I can't quite place it. Maybe it's because it's a homage... To issue 14. Yeah. I think it's glorious. And I think that image, that image of Jerry Hardway, it's beautiful. I don't... Is it painted? Uh, Superman and the mountain and Metropolis isn't, but the sky is. The background's a painted image. Yeah. So what's Superman then? Because it's not standard, a standard cover. What's he done to it if it's not quite painted he's made it stand out in a painterly way he looks the same it's just the sky that looks painted to me right okay and the colouring's gorgeous Mm. Uh, I think um, that image has rightly become quite marketable I've seen that on t-shirts and converse and converse and um, it's a big poster print in range yeah as well a big canvas print I don't think there's anything wrong with that it's gorgeous if I am going to critique it it's that Superman seems a little bit stocky. But Jerry Ordway draws his Superman as being a little bit stocky, doesn't he? Mm. So it kind of fits in with what he's drawing. I think it's absolutely gorgeous cover. I love that. I could, I could have that as a poster. Because I think it's great. Man of War was written by Marv Wolfman with art by Jerry Ordway. 
Lois Lane's mum suffers a serious accident at work because the Health and Safety Act obviously hasn't come into force in Metropolis. A freak occurrence is what they think. Lucy Lane thinks that the Lane family may be cursed. Elsewhere, a business meeting goes south when a CEO points out that they own the oil in Karak. The Karaki delegate points out that this is not the case. Karak is not aligned with any power and he storms out in a big kiddie strop. Outside the building, via remote control, he summons a really big robot who destroys the building. Yay, big robots. At the Daily Planet, new employee Catherine Cat Grant makes a scene, openly flirting with Clark and putting Lois in her place. Lois thinks that Cat is a gossip monger, and Perry asks Lois, why do you think I hired her? Clark and Cat almost get it on right there in the office, but Perry gives Clark and Cat a story to work on together. He gives her every exclusive. As they drive to lunch, already? To discuss whatever story it is that they're covering, Clark spies the fallen building and, spotting some grappler marks on the framework with his microscopic vision, deduces that this was no boating accident. Despite spotting a man trapped under the rubble, he decides to leave it to the police to handle, because, you know, he's got a date with Cat, after all. This is a super with his priority straight, isn't it? More buildings are destroyed by the robot this time, leaving notes from a terrorist organisation, the Freedom League. But Clark and Cat are busy visiting Professor Hamilton, get your minds out of the gutter, a brilliant scientist who has fallen from grace. He's made a defence system that even Clark can't break free from. Clark's interview is interrupted when he hears a ruckus outside City Hall, and it's a job for Superman. It's another giant robot declaring war on American imperialism, but Superman's not going to let that lie, and it's time for action. Superman swoops in, holding back as he is unsure if the war machine is manned. Here's a wacky idea, Superman. Use your x-ray vision. And he's blasted across the street for his hesitance. He returns and tries to hold the machine back, but is crushed under the treads. The action is then interrupted as a subplot rears its ugly head. Remember Lois's mum, Ellie? Well, Lois is taken against her will to Lex Luthor, who informs Lois the company Ellie works for is a subsidiary of LexCorp. A barely noticeable subsidiary, you know, far beneath Lex's notice, but a subsidiary to be sure. And after hearing all about the accident, Lex felt responsible. He had his team work night and day to find a cure that would aid Ellie, and by Gadfrey they managed it. She will have to take it every month for the rest of her life, but she'll be fine. Such is the benevolence of Lex Luthor. Back in town, Superman gets back up and the tanks have disappeared. Somehow, Superman pops by Inspector Henderson, where he's told all the backstory, Karak, terrorists, etc. But all is dropped when the Daily Planet is discovered to be the next target. He flies on over and, seeing a number of such toys, wonders how Karak could have developed these overgrown Transformers. He steals himself for battle. Meanwhile, as Lois leaves, serum in hand, Lex gloats. You didn't think the accident was really an accident, did you? No, it was all a Lex Luthor ruse. Now and forever, Lois is in his debt. It's very moustache twirling, isn't he? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's like he signposts it in the middle of the comic, where they're having that conversation where he's like... A mere subsidiary of LexCorp. I barely knew about it. And the line of dialogue on the first page, why did you happen to be going into that building at that precise moment? It's like, talk about holding a neon sign up saying this was no boating accident. Yeah. <laughs> Not subtle. 
in anywhere. Lex Luthor's not subtle. What? So did, well, none of it was In fact, if Lex Luthor's missing anything, it's a mustache. <laughs> so he can twirl it yeah. as he's doing nasty things to Lois. Um, the opening scene that we've just mentioned is, is rather boring. It's a rather dull, everyone sits around the bed fretting over a hospitalised person that doesn't really hit the ground running in terms of this being a brand new Superman. I, I did think it was quite funny, though. Why? Because, um, General Lane, yeah, says, oh, you've, we've put our differences aside and we've come as a family, yet he ignores Lois. Yeah, you've Lois nothing but greed. Yeah. And uh, some of the dialogue is grown some. It's very expository, isn't it? Especially General Lane's lines. I get the setting up that Lex arranged this, but that line, damn, why did this have to happen, Ellie? Why did they send you to that chemical plant? Why did it explode just as you entered? God, that was overwrought, wasn't it? (laughs) It was, oh, you know... It doesn't flow. It's not natural. I don't think fictional dialogue has to be realistic. Yeah. Because I've said to you before, have you ever listened to real people speak? It's god-awful. It's painful to listen to. But that just wasn't good. That was dreadful. Why could we not have found out about this when Lois finds out about it? And then save that reveal for the end. That telegraphs that this wasn't an accident, doesn't it? Mm. Just, just bad. Just not a very good piece of writing at all. I expect better from Marv Wolf. Um, speaking of writing, I'd love to know what people who were only reading Superman thought of this at the time. Yeah. If you were only reading Superman, you went from whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow to this. Mm. Without Man of Steel to give this context, this probably was quite a shock. Yeah. Because it is completely different from what we read last time, isn't it? Mm. And the other three issues in this 80s retrospective. See, I only jumped on board with Man of Steel largely, so I didn't have that smack yeah. in the face. I'd love to know what people thought about this we were reading. If Bob Fish is listening, mm. Bob, you need to tell us what this was like to be reading this as a continually reading Superman fan, and not as somebody who was like, oh, John Burns reads Superman. Awesome. Page two has the discussion about oil and who owns it leading to terrorist action. It's nice to see we've grown as a people in nearly 30 years, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Mm. I, I, I like um, Karak. I've, al- I, I've always loved Karak because <laughs> thinly it's, veiled. It's supposed to be a fictional place, but they're not fooling anyone. No, no, they're really not, are they? Um, I didn't get why the terrorists would care if the building was empty, apart from their targets. Yeah, because they actually make a point of saying uh, janitorial staffs on holiday, which never happens. Yeah. There wouldn't be no janitorial staff on duty. They don't let them all have holidays at the same time. Mm. I didn't get why they could. They're the bad guys, dude. Maybe the nice terrorists. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're, they're fighting for the janitor's freedom. <laughs> That's why they're the Freedom League. Yeah. You just missed off the word janitorial staff Freedom League. <laughs> yeah. Right, okay, fair enough. Uh, we go to the Daily Planet where Clark and Cat Grant get into a very moonlighting-esque snappy patter, which has its moments, such as Cat offering to pull Clark's leg three when he gets stuck in the elevator, mm. which that was genuinely funny, where she's, uh, I can pull your leg free, and he's like, the, the, the stop button will, will do, golly, <laughs> very nicely, thank you, gee, golly, that's just swell. <laughs> uh, he doesn't actually say any of that, because this know. is an all-new... Clark Kent, but some of the other uh, attempts at um, flirty dialogue is quite, quite awful. Maybe we can fall for each other again another day. 
yeah. says Cat after they fall on top of each other. And uh, later Clark states, we've taken a trip together. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, the Lois Perry exchange, I thought was class. She's a scandal monger, Lois says of Cat, And a good one with a large following, replies Perry, which I thought was brilliant. Mm. Lovely little character bait. He's, um, he's a newspaper man, but he still needs to sell newspapers. Yeah. And if he has to do that by getting the gossip columnist in, mm-hmm. then he's more than happy to do that. Nice link to action comics in this scene as well. With Clark taking a phone call from Gunderson and saying, uh, I'll do what I can to contact Superman for you. I still don't get the point of him having a secret identity if everyone knows that Clark Kent can get in touch with him. Yeah. Well, it's, it's I like, thought that was, that was one of the things that the reboot existed to get rid of. It's like Peter Parker bragging about being mm. Spidey's best buddy. Being Spider-Man's photographer. Yeah, yeah. He's publicist. Yeah. And then he turned it around, though, and said, didn't he, but you think Spider-Man likes me? Yeah. Jonah uses those photos to make him look like an idiot. Yeah. He doesn't think I'm his friend. So that was, I don't mind that. They've all only just arrived in the office, right? Yeah. It's, you get the impression it's first thing in the morning, okay. Why are they all going for lunch? I don't know. Do they have long lunches at the Daily Planet? Do you want to see a long lunch, Otis? <laughs> you want to see a really long lunch? Maybe they're just in the office for a while. <laughs> really? So they get in the elevator arriving at the office, they go to this meeting and then they leave because Lois watches them get in the car and they're off for a long lunch. They're off for a three-hour lunch on the Daily Planet tab. Brunch? I don't think Clark and uh, Cat were going for lunch. Maybe, yeah. Dude, I don't think that was on maybe, the Maybe you, you, they're treating the word lunch too seriously. <laughs> maybe, maybe, yes. That's, that's true, yeah. And then we get to the bit that I alluded to in the synopsis. Clark would rather go to lunch with Cat than rescue the guy trapped under the rubble. He tells the police where he is. Yeah, and then he gets in the car and goes, yeah, yeah, there's somebody there, honest, bye, I'm, I'm on a booty call. <laughs> I'm in for some afternoon delight, you go rescue him. <laughs> Did that feel a little bit non-Clark Kenty to you? I don't know. It's, you know. He's, he's a new Clark Kent, isn't he? <laughs> A new Clark Kent doesn't care about the guy trapped under the rubble if yeah. he can get some cat grant action. A new Clark Kent has priorities. <laughs> and they don't involve anything other than little Clark Kent. No. Is that what you're saying? I, I did like the Professor Hamilton scene because it's very reminiscent of the many dotty scientists who would crop up on the 50s show. Although, this scene felt very familiar. It was very similar to the Spider-Man scene in the Lee Ditko Spider Slayer issue hmm. where he demonstrates that the Spider Slayer can do this by trapping Peter in the thing and Peter's like using his spider strength and he's like I can't get out of this Yeah, this is a problem very similar to this hmm. which could be a coincidence but given that Marv Wolfman wrote Spider-Man as well I kind of doubt it finally Superman shows up full page splash on page 12 which is glorious mm-hmm. which I like a great deal and I've got a postcard in the middle of my comic for a sweepstake for a trade paperback copy of The Man of Steel. I thought that was pretty cool, actually. Yeah. Uh, it's a unique version of The Man of Steel. The one-volume Man of Steel special edition. Because it would be released in trade paperback not long after this. Yeah, so that, that doesn't mean anything now, though, because no. there's loads of collected editions. Yeah. Know, maybe it was a special edition that you you couldn't buy in the shop. From what I got from that is it was the only edition and you couldn't buy it in shops. Until two months later when we'll release it as a trade. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was a good postcard, though, wasn't it? I wonder why I never sent off. All entries must be received by November 1st, 1986. Well, I've missed that deadline. Uh, All right, there you go. Residents of the USA, including Alaska, Hawaii, and Canada. That's it. So I couldn't have sent it off. 
So maybe that's why I left it in my comic. And there it still is. Mm-hmm. Bit faded, isn't it? The comic isn't, just the postcard. There is no bother with Superman fighting robots. I always love Superman fighting robots. Mm. And uh, they seem to give him quite a hard time. Although, to be fair, he is holding back, isn't he? Yeah. Because they're in a built-up area. So, alright, I'll, I'll give him some slack. I'll cut him some slack, though. Um, Lex steals the issue, though. Yeah. Even though he's not in it very much, everything he does drives the Lois Lane portion of the story, which is a large, quite a large subplot. If Wolfman's work is a little pedestrian in other aspects of this issue, he nails Lex Luthor. Although I did think it felt a little bit out of character for Lex to completely divulge his plan to a lackey. Yeah, well, she doesn't exactly scream lackey. And we never see her again, so presumably pushes her out of a building in between issues. Yeah, could be. No, I mean, yeah, it looks like she's his latest squeeze. A certain lackey. Yeah. Lackey with with benefits. Yeah, yeah. I think it would be called. Um, the most... Oh, it's still... What's out of the cinema? Stallone, Cobra. Yeah, yeah. I'm the cream. You're the disease. I'm the cream. <laughs> I'm the Just cream. Just rubbing on that disease. I'm the cream. You're the cat. <laughs> no, I'm the cat. You're the cream. That'd be a good catchphrase, wouldn't it? Yeah. Wasn't it? I'm the, cr- I'm the disease. You're the crime. You're the disease. I'm the cure. I'm the cure. It's Mr. Slow. <laughs> Marion Cabretti. <laughs> Do you know, Cobra is such a bad film that it, it's brilliant. It, yeah. It is awful. Oh, yeah. It's yeah, absolutely... Yeah. You watched that with me chuckling yeah, away. You it's made me watch bad. it. I didn't make you watch it. I put it on and you were there. Hey, no, it was one of the times where we watched a film or a TV show before school and work. Yeah. And that was what we watched then. It was crap. It, yeah. <laughs> but it was brilliantly crap. It, it was. It so wanted Wasn't to be dirty, Harry. the movie where he was so bad in it, you can blatantly see the extras laughing at him. <laughs> He's not a very good actor in that He's film. not. It's not acting, he's just posing, isn't it? Yeah. His yeah. sunglasses around and the toothpicks in. And, and badly driving into park cars. Yeah, he's absolutely... And he's got the snake head on his gun, <laughs> on the bottom of his gun, and it's truly, truly, <laughs> absolutely dreadful movie that I actually adore watching. Yeah. Because <laughs> it's cack. The most grounded Superman since the George Reeves TV series, albeit with big robots, which the show could never have afforded. This is tonally completely different from the other Superman comics we've covered in the 80s. It's arguably tonally different to what John Byrne was doing. Marv Wolfman's script brings a degree of real-world menace to the Superman franchise, and sadly this tale of terrorist insurgency and attacks on civilians isn't all that dated. It's a big change for Superman, and it's not entirely successful. The dialogue is woefully leaden in places, with some horrible exposition and failed attempts at flirty moonlighting-like banter. Superman feels too weak here, and whilst the point of the reboot was to make Superman sweat, having him be crushed under a building seems a little too Spider-Man. One place where this is wholly successful is the art. Jerry Ordway's grittier street-level approach suits this version of Superman to a T, and his work rapidly became a favourite. Highly detailed, gorgeous to look at, and chock-full of great moments, I went from dropping the Fantastic Four after Ordway worked on it, to ultimately thinking he was a better artist than John Byrne. Mm. 
Did you like that one? Yes. Did you? I did. Oh, good. And I, I really like the giant robots that turn into a Power Rangers robot. The giant robots that were Transformers. Yeah, Let's yeah. be honest here. All it needed was Megan Fox bending over. <laughs> and it's a Transformers movie mm-hmm. with Michael Bay in it. What did you like about it? I, I just really liked it. Um... Maybe it was because it was completely different to all the other Superman we've covered. Oh, it's completely different. I liked it. I just think some of the, the dialogue was a bit woeful. And I think they signposted that the accident wasn't an accident too much. Yeah, but we kind of thought that would be like that anyway. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's Lex Luthor, isn't it? Yeah. A little bit of moustache twirling, never did anyone in that. Anywhere. And I already knew that Lois was indebted to him because of a story we covered later on. Did we? Yeah. I don't remember which one that was. And neither do I, but... Um, is that not a Jeff Loeb one, which is another time that Lois is indebted to him? It, it could be. Because <laughs> if someone who hates Lex Luthor, she's in debt to him. Do awful lot, yeah. Yeah, he'll kill a story. She has to kill a story of his choice. Right. At any time. Cosmic Boy got his own miniseries. We've... We've... we've <laughs> We have, so we won't. <laughs> before the ardent Cosmic Boy fan club email us in. <laughs> I think Timmy have uh, a pink t-shirts. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's it's a great costume that Cosmic Boy wears. I'm uh, I'm I'm completely down with it. The Karate Kid on action figures. Hey. Yay! God, they were awesome. Look at Mr. Miyagi there doing yoga. <laughs> <laughs> Kicking that guy off the building. He's killing him. That is some shabby craftsmanship. That is. <laughs> Where's what's his name? Oh yeah, there's Johnny. Sweep the leg. <laughs> and I like that the Karate Kid's got his funny little headband on. Were there any other interesting adverts in this one other than uh, Cosmic Boy again, his own miniseries, which we heartily endorse and in no way have took the piss out of in any way whatsoever? Was there no good comics? Oh, The Demon! Matt Wagner's done something to The Demon. Bet he didn't rhyme anymore. Probably not made him very good. Oh, there is a comic advert. G.I. Joe. Oh, it's just a picture. Wolverine. Oh, it's just a picture. What's hot? There are no hot. Oh, Dark Knight! Dark Knight was hot. Okay. G.I. Joe is hot. Uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles apparently wasn't hot, by all accounts. There was a limit of five each to the New Universe books. Why would you buy five copies of the New Universe books? Man of Steel, you were only allowed to buy five each. Now you can get them in the 50p bins. Oh, Burn Superman's hot! Was this the beginning of hot? It could be. Robotech is on sale. Robotech's good. I like Robotech. Um, yeah, Thundercats, Classic X-Men, nothing of interest, really. Mm-hmm. Throw that one out the work, but not across the room, because it didn't suck. <laughs> the Batman was in a state of flux in 1987. Whilst the Dark Knight Returns was gaining critical and commercial acclaim as a collected hardcover, the main Batman titles seemed in conflict with each other. On the one hand, there was the regular Batman comic telling quite gritty, sometimes mean-spirited crime stories by Max Allen Collins, and starting anew with the all-new origin of Jason Todd, the second Robin. He boosted tyres off the Batmobile, don't you know? Over in Detective Comics, Mike W. Barr, Alan Davis and Paul Neary were creating stories that were almost the polar opposite of the Batman stuff. Material that harkened back to the Silver Age, albeit with a modern twist. The editors at DC couldn't seem to decide how much of Batman's backstory was now part of the post-crisis DCU, which led to some confusion regarding the characterisation of young Mr. Todd across the two series, and there was very much a feeling of an editor and team finding their feet. There were high points, Son of the Demon, a high-end hardcover graphic novel came out this year and Batman Year One ran across four issues of Batman to be followed by Batman Year Two across four issues of Detective but the feeling that something wasn't quite right permeated. 
By the end of the year, the creative teams on both books would be let go, and Batman would be in the hands of veterans Jim Sterling and Jim Aparo, and Detective under the auspices of Judge Dredd authors John Wagner and Alan Grant, with art by Norm Bray Fogel. Detective Comics issue 573 is our not-so-randomly selected pick, which is cover dated April 1987. I say not-so-random as eight issues of the 24 this year were year one and year two, and we don't want to cover them. The cover by Alan Davis and Paul Neary depicts the Mad Hatter sat atop, get it, a mechanised top hat remotely controlling straw boaters doubling as buzzsaws with Wayne for Councilman written on them. He's steering them at Batman and Robin. Oddly, the art is not as good as the interior, and the garish orange colour scheme is a tad off-putting. Robin also looks very goofy. Yeah, well, the, the, he gives them pupils. Yeah, in his mask, in. which looks a bit odd, doesn't it? They're in the inside as well. I know that. Well... In some panels. In some panels, yeah, yeah. Right, he only does it for artistic licence. Yeah, and it, it just looks a bit goofy. Alright, okay. Do you like the cover, though? Yeah, yeah. It's alright, isn't it? Yeah. It's not as good as they are inside, which, given that it's by Alan Davis and Paul Neary, strikes me as a bit odd. Mm. But, okay. The Mad Hatter flips his lids, has art by the aforementioned, and was written by Mike W. Barr. Jervis Tetch, the Mad Hatter, is released from Gotham State Prison, and despite his pleas that he's a changed man, still craves hats. All hats. Any hats! Two men with no hats and no desire to see him place another tit fur upon his head are Batman and Robin, who greet Tetch and give him a friendly warning. It is to no avail. With no real hat to call his own, Tetch makes one from a newspaper. And one week later, he's up to his old tricks, sending a cryptic clue to the caped crusaders via Commissioner Gordon. The Batman figures it out because he's Batman and prevents Tetch's crew from getting away with murder at the Liars Club. Why the Liars Club, you may ask? Well, I'll tell you, lovely listener, because, get this, a lying man is speaking out of his hat! (laughs) Tetch escapes after causing a fire that Batman and Robin are forced to fight, but the Batman has figured out Tetch's next target. A hockey game the next night is the recipient of the Hatter's presence. Why? Three goals is a hat trick! again makes his escape so Bruce Wayne decides to lure him out of hiding with a celebratory party announcing Wayne for Councilman. All this money is bound to bring Tetch out and show enough it does as Bruce spots a number of straw boaters being delivered. Boaters he didn't order. After some pow, kapow and bam our heroes pursue Tetch into a dark and stormy night. Again, the Mad Hatter almost gets away thanks to the flying top hat from the cover, but Batman, wham, lays him out. Sadly, as the Batman does so, Tetch gets off a shot that seems to hit Robin. <laughs> this was so 60s. It, it was. In many, many ways. I can't help but think maybe Batman and Robin shouldn't visit people upon the release from prison. Yeah. I can't help but think that did more harm than good. Especially since the they're in the police car. Yeah. That they just leave in. in the street with him in it. Yeah. Yeah. And did they steal this police car? Where did they get this police? Did Bruce Wayne buy it? 
Who knows? But Batman's got a police car. And where did Robin get the police hat that he taunts Jervis Tetch with Probably. by pushing the brim back rather jauntily with his thumb? Which is a lovely panel. Yeah, yeah. Probably from the policeman they got the car off. Probably from the policeman that they knocked out, drugged and tied up so they could steal their police car. Yeah. Excellent. Good. Well done, kids. We heartily approve of this. I do love that panel. I think that's good. And then when he reaches forward for the cop's hat and Robin bats him away. Yeah. That's a beautiful panel as well. The artwork's pretty faultless. Yeah. Throughout this entire issue. I think the story's fun. Mm. I think it's actually a lot of fun, this issue. I don't want people thinking we're going to diss on it, because we're not. I, love, I really like the newspaper hat as well. I like the newspaper hat. I think that's genius. He just pulls over, buys a newspaper, and just turns it into a hat. Mm. And he looks exactly like David Wayne, who played Mad Hatter in the TV show. Yeah. He's the spitting image of the actor, so that's that's um, quite impressive. The logo on page four is the 50s and 60s Batman logo. Batman with Robin the Boy Wonder and the very presence of a splash page unrelated to the main story is also very Silver Age isn't it yeah. especially the dialogue the Mad Hatter is back but don't worry about holding onto your hat this time the Prince of Crowns has given up his usual headgear orientated crimes in favour of giving the dynamic duo a headache it's all part of a tale we call the Mad Hatter flips his lids it's good, isn't it? Yeah. Absolutely fantastic stuff. Got no problem with this at all. Everything about the art in this issue is glorious. The fight scenes are fantastic. The manor work is faultless. The bat cave feels a little bit sparse, but mm. you know what you're going to do. Lovely portrayal of the bat signal on page five. And I like Robin not finding a clue. And Batman saying the thorough inspection of all evidence. That's the first rule of crime detection as he lifts up the lid. Yeah, which has the message underneath from the Mad Hatter. There's a couple of good fight scenes. The first one at the Liars Club. I love Bruce's reaction to Jason cutting yeah, his yeah. newspaper to bits. Jason, what have you done to this newspaper? Sorry, Bruce. <laughs> I, I also liked that. Ah, let's go have some of Alfred's chocolate cake. Ah, I've solved the clue. No time for chocolate cake, Jay. <laughs> oh, he's got him. He's stuffing his face. Yeah, he, he got some chocolate cake. Thanks to uh, young Alfred. Uh, the fight scene in the middle is great at the Gotham Sports Arena. The Hall of Sport has giant golf balls, giant golf clubs, and a full-size pool table. By full-size, I mean huge. I, I also like the full-size um, queue. Yeah, there's a full-size pool <laughs> queue that goes with the pool table. Yeah. Because everything's built to scale. That Batman uses to pull vault. Yeah. Did Dick Sprang write this issue? <laughs> Was my immediate question. I like that he bowls them all over with the pool balls. Yeah. <laughs> this comic was great. It, it, was. it was fantastic. More great art when Bruce decides to run for uh, councilman and he becomes the vapid playboy and announces his plans to run. Alfred and Jason's face in the background are just adorable. Yeah. Let's be honest, this isn't Jason Todd, is it? No. It's Dick Grayson, isn't it? Yeah. By any other name. I, I, I didn't exactly know why the Mad Hatter would come to Bruce Wayne's event until I reread the, the headline of the newspaper. Wayne throws hat into political ring. Yeah. Very good. Yeah. Hey. Millionaire plans to run for councilman. I love his line. And the only problem, I can't decide which political party to join. Yeah. Bruce is an ass hat, isn't he? I, I, ass hat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I like the uh, and the dialogue in those um, four panels, though. Yeah, the, these panels are brilliant. Where Commissioner Garden essentially gives him a hard time and says, "Blast it, Bruce! If your father were here, and Bruce just turns all serious, yeah, and says, but he can't be, can he, Commissioner?'" 
and then he goes back to being a vapid playboy. Yeah. Ah, that was a lovely little character moment, that. Mm. That uh, his dad, and his mum, to a lesser extent, death is still a sore point. I also love that um, every time Bruce gets a glass of alcohol, he tosses it in a plant pot without yeah. anyone seeing that he's doing it. So it looks like he's drinking an awful lot without actually drinking anything. Mm. But remember he used to do that in Burn Notice? When he had to go out drinking with people as part of his cover, he would drink it and just let it dribble outside of his mouth. Yeah. And then just mop it up so he wasn't drinking anywhere near as much as they thought he was. I always liked the little tricks like that. I think it's quite cool. A brilliant ending as well, after the fight scene with the straw boaters, which have razor blades. Well, I, I liked where Batman goes, ah, that shotgun, and uses it to defend himself. Yeah, he doesn't pick up a shotgun and start firing. He uses <laughs> yeah. it to block them. I look, all three of them are on, on line. Yeah, He yeah. catches them all in the gun, which is absolutely brilliant. And then, you can tell it turns serious on the last two pages, because they go outside and it's bucketing down with rain. Yeah. And nothing says serious moment to high than rain. Like rain, does it? Yeah, rain at night. Rain at night, exactly right. Um, and he shoots Robin. And next issue, the way it began, the new origin of the Batman. Um, on the one hand, this was a really odd issue to be reading in the 1980s. And not at all what one would expect no. from a late 1980s Batman comic. It's bright and colourful and riddled with bad puns. And the plot is almost light-hearted, albeit with darker moments. But the art is likewise colourful and crisp. And this feels like a Silver Age comic inadvertently published in the late 80s. And none of this is a bad thing. Whilst the characterisation of Jason Todd now feels rather odd... A bright-eyed, pun-happy-go-lucky soul is far from what he would become. This was just enormous good fun. In addition to a rogue who's now largely forgotten, there are giant props, Bruce acting like a head, and it's never completely wacky or goofy. Mm. It never quite teeters over that line, does it, into no. camp. It's like people forgot to tell Mike W. Barr that the 60s were over. Yeah. When he wrote this. It's a huge amount of fun, and I adored every single moment of it. But I think the Davis Burr Neary run of Detective Comics is severely underrated. What did you think? I, I really, really liked it. It's great, isn't it? To be honest, though, yeah. I don't care about what happens to Robin at the end. Well, it wouldn't matter. Within three or four months, these issues would be completely negated. Yeah. With the arrival. In fact, I think that the new Jason Todd's origin was happening at roughly the same time this was published. Mm. And there's no way you can make that Jason Todd this Jason Todd. It just doesn't work. So he became a new Jason Todd after the crisis, eh? Yeah. Like, three, four years after crisis? No. Straight away after crisis. Right. But this is after crisis. Yes, this is after the crisis. That's what I'm saying. In Batman, they are currently publishing the new Jason Todd. Do you know he stole the wheels off the Batmobile? Origin of Robin. Yeah. And in Detective Comics, they're publishing this. Yeah, okay. And you're like, what the... (laughs) There's no way you can make the two fit together, is there? Mm. It just doesn't work. This is better than what was going on in Batman, because it's just more fun. I'm glad that one got a thumbs up, because I was reading that going, is Michael Hunter thinks he's goofy? (laughs) But I thought it was brilliant. Absolute joy. The Amazing Spider-Man had a turbulent 1987. Tom DeFalco's working relationship with Jim Owlsley was becoming untenable, with Owlsley taking over scripting after DeFalco's plot, after DeFalco learned he couldn't trust his editor, and it's fair to say that Owlsley's run as Spider-Man editor is a mixed bag, tarnished considerably by his botched handling of the Hobgoblin mystery. 
New editor Jim Salicrut brought a feeling of stability to the books, first with the epic Craven's Last Hunt storyline, which, for the first time in Spider-Man publishing history, crossed over into the other two Spider-Man titles. A follow-up experiment, Life in the Mad Dog Ward, was nowhere near as well received, but the year ended on a high with the arrival of David Michelini and Todd McFarlane as the regular creative team. As usual, other than when Craven's Last Hunt was being published, the other Spider-Man titles were a mixed bag. Peter Parker, the spectacular Spider-Man had moments, largely in the Peter David scripted issues, and there were a couple of issues of Web of Spider-Man that weren't actually all that bad, but both titles were marred by subpar filling material and lacklustre stories and art. Not an auspicious era for our favourite wall crawler, with but one exception. Amazing Spider-Man issue 291 had a cover by Al Milgram. It's all white, with a large silhouette of Spider-Man black costume version looming over Peter and Murray Jane as Peter Parker asks the big question. It's really rather eye-catching and striking, if a little boring. Hmm. So, as an artistic piece of work, it's good, isn't it? Yeah. But you're like, oh, what's Peter asking Murray Jane? Does my my bum look big in this? (laughs) I, I really like it. It's good. But I was being pissy. Upon reading the issue, it's kind of, <laughs> kind of ruined when you realise that Peter and Murray Jane are taken directly out of the last page. The big question is obviously, will you live with me? <laughs> Isn't it? Yes. In the post-one-more-day era. The, the big question is really what's in the box. <laughs> what's in the box? <laughs> well, don't look. Don't look. <laughs> <laughs> The big question is also the title of the story written by David Michelini with art by John Romita Jr. and Vinnie Coletta. Spider-Man is feeling down, and he wonders why. He's rededicated himself to the superhero cause, but something is missing. He's distracted by a madman at the Times Square demo hosted by Mayor Koch, and steps in. This guy is no real threat, and still feeling lousy, heads over to Mary Jane. She says, go and visit your aunt and uncle in bed. No, she doesn't. She says, go and visit your aunt in Queens, which he does. Browsing around his old room, he spies that the microscope his uncle Ben bought him has gone. Aunt May gave it to the church bazaar for an orphanage fundraiser. You mean the witch was giving away my stuff? Peter oddly doesn't get angry about this. He just pops over to see if he can retrieve it. However, after speaking to the father, he can't bring himself to ask, and so we'll wait for the auction. Whilst there, though, there is useful exposition about the Judah Scepter, which is on loan as part of the fundraiser. Ex-gang members, there's something that never ends well, called Heaven's Angels, are guarding it to pay penance for their past. A lot of alliteration in that sentence. <laughs> As the bidding starts, Peter checks his cash. He has $41. If it goes higher than that, he's out of the race. Just as his lot comes up, a yell from outside distracts him. Some thieves have stolen the receipts from the Tilt-A-Whirl ride. Spider-Man makes the scene, prevents the theft, but his spider sense gives the old danger tingle. Inside the church, Max, one of the Heaven's Angels, is stealing the scepter. Hands up if you didn't see that coming. For Spider-Man, this will not stand, and he butts in. Max takes a child hostage and climbs up to some nearby construction work and they confront each other. As Max reaches for the ladder to escape, Spider-Man strikes back. He latches his webbing on two paint cans and hurls them at Max. The covers come off and the paint flies all over the criminal as the kid ducks out of the way. Spider-Man punches Max out. 
Peter then returns to the auction, still in progress, and manages to win the microscope for the princely sum of $40. He's still a bit down, though, and to fix his malaise, completely out of the blue, with no warning whatsoever, and without them even actually being going on a date recently, he asks Mary Jane to marry him. That was the big question, it by was. the way. Not what happened to my microscope. No, no. Just in case you were confused. <laughs> uh, Spider-Man's wearing the black and white costume, but it's the cloth version that the black cat made for him. For some reason, it looks god-awful in this issue. I don't know if John Jr. didn't like drawing it. I don't know if it's the inks that make it look bad, but it just looks like a big black blob. That's kind of what it is. And other artists give it some definition, though. McFarlane gave it definition. Ron Friends gave it definition. John Romita Jr., I mean, the art's adequate in this issue, but the costume just hangs there, doesn't it? I kind of like it like this, though. Do you? Yeah. I think it was boring. Well, There's no dynamism to it, to the way it's drawn here. In contrast to the regular one, it is boring and has no... No, the, bla- the black costume's actually quite cool, I think. Yeah. When it's drawn properly. I, I don't see the problem. I didn't, I didn't like it. Alright, fair enough. Uh, Murkoch, or Cock, or Kutch, <laughs> Koch, I presume. Yeah. Not Cock. Was actually the mayor of New York at the time this issue was published. Okay. Real guy. Uh, him making Jonas say nice things about Spider-Man in print was, was quite cute. Mm. But this issue is full of cute moments. Yeah. That didn't really add up to a, a pretty good story. But there's lots of cute bits. Peter references that he doesn't know who shot J.R. Ewing from a 1980 episode of Dallas. Dallas was still in the air in 1987, so it's not as dated a reference as you may think. And it's back on the air now, isn't it? Yeah. However, if this Peter is supposed to be about 2021, and this was comic was published in 1987, he would have been 12 when that episode of Dallas heard. 13, 12, 13 years of age, depending on when it heard. Okay. Would he have been watching Dallas at 12 or 13? Maybe Aunt May watched it. Maybe. Yeah. Aunt May was a big Dallas fan. Was she? Yeah. She had a nice shot, GR bumper on the back of her, <laughs> of her grey mobile. <laughs> she totally did. <laughs> I believe that. I believe that that's true. Uh, he also hasn't bought a record since the monkeys were hot the first time, which again isn't that dated. The monkeys seem to have surges in popularity every five to seven years or so until Davy Jones' untimely death. Hmm couple of years ago so uh, yeah, those two references still kind of work I suppose yeah who shot JR's kind of still in the popular culture if you you were aware of it weren't you yeah kind of ish alright fair enough doesn't really make sense when Peter goes over to Aunt May's house that his room would still be preserved in amber like it is here from when he was 15 years of age 15 years of age sorry Aunt May moved out of this house in the 60s she went and lived with Aunt Anna Right. for a while if you remember I don't know if she sold it or rented it or whatever but in any event she ran an OAP boarding house from here yeah so, so presumably at some part that room was used by somebody else the, the elderly couple who lived there didn't leave it like a 15 year old were decorated did they I guess yeah not likely unless she's got like 80 bedrooms <laughs> which is like no wonder she was always struggling on the rent would you not just go move to a smaller place yeah, yeah. jeez you don't right. need so many basements yeah well, maybe Aunt May does. Oh, I, I think she's like Jessica Fletcher. She's a murderer. Okay. She's killing people in the basement. And yeah. then a she basically, her and Nathan yeah, yeah. saw <laughs> down in the basement, <laughs> don't they? They both put on funny clown masks. <laughs> <laughs> and they say, you've got ten seconds to rescue the woman next door. 
or yourself. Which do you choose? And Nathan's upstairs chuckling away. <laughs> he's, he's the one on the little truck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or a wheelchair. Yeah, and May's the one cutting the tendon to the back of the heel. Yeah. <laughs> Peter thinks she's sweet and innocent, but we know the truth. Quite frankly. She, she really did shoot Jaya. <laughs> it was a cover-up. <laughs> And that's where it all started. That's where this life of crime began for Aunt May. Yeah. <laughs> and Spider-Man is the one crime fighter she'll never catch. All this time there's a crime, a criminal living in his house. He never knew it. Yeah. Oh, he's bloody naive, isn't he? <laughs> uh, another continuity glitch in this issue is the, the deal with the microscope. First seen in Amazing Fantasy 15, Peter left this microscope on Ben Parker's grave in Amazing Spider-Man issue 181. Right. So, how has he got it back here? Uh, off page. Okay. <laughs> yeah, right. So much to him. It did, yeah. Wasn't the microscope also a plot point in Mark Millar's Spider-Man story, and he got it wrong as well? I don't know. Because at the end of the oh, at the end of this issue, Peter gets it back, doesn't he? Yeah. All right. So Mark Millar's maybe works there, but he shouldn't still have it because he left it on a grave, and the guy who tends the graves took it for his kid. Right. So basically, he's a grave robber. Fair enough. I don't think he is. I don't think that really. It's a bit simplistic. Uh, there is something really odd model about the scene at church. Peter won't ask for his microscope back as it's been auctioned for the orphanage and he's prepared to buy his own property back just to give them a few dollars. Yeah. Oh, that was very Peter Parker. It wasn't just a few dollars though. It was all he had, yeah. Yeah. He's, he's got one dollar now for a bag of M&M's which he gives <laughs> to Mary Jane. Yeah, yeah. Well, you, Peter, it's very altruistic of you but what are you living off for the rest of the week, dude? Yeah. He's got no money. Seems a bit silly to me, but, you know, whatever. Likewise, Peter, waiting for the auction, just as his lot comes up, Spider-Man has to go into action. A choice between what Peter wants and what Spider-Man needs is no choice at all. But again, it's a lovely little Peter Parker moment where he's just like, but my... Oh, damn it! Because, like, it's, there's never any doubt he's going to go and stop the robber. Yeah. But it's a lovely little Peter Parker moment that he's... Ah, hell... Good bit. I liked it. Let's sort of say this issue's full of little good moments. Mm. Lots of little nice scenes. How Spider-Man takes Max out, I thought was pretty cool, because it was brains, timing, and paint. Because he loosens, he says the lids are loose, and then throws the paint at him. Which is icky, because have you ever got paint all over you? Uh, yeah. That is quite cool. Like, oh, you do every day, don't you? Yeah. yeah. That's quite... I love that the kid's smart enough to get out of the way as well. Yeah. And then his parents don't believe him. <laughs> <laughs> I expected them to follow that up with that bit from Superman the movie, where the kid's like, you're a mess. And Spider-Man. <laughs> I expected that to come next. <laughs> Superman doesn't go back and stop the child beating. Yeah. Rescues the cat out of the tree. <laughs> doesn't stop the child beating. Maybe a Clark Kent who doesn't rescue people from under rubble, but goes to nail Cat Grant instead. Maybe that's not far from the truth. <laughs> Maybe, yeah. Maybe that's, uh, that's all what I say. On the one hand, this issue has lots of really cool moments. Peter has a feeling of malaise throughout the entire story, and he's unsure why. His stroll down memory lane is well handled and quite emotional. Peter is still Peter, though, and there's still some funny to be had and some great character moments. Nicolini does a great job with the build-up as well as the whole issue being a slow burn as we get to the climactic question when Peter asks MJ to marry him. Taken out of context as an issue of the decade, it works all right. It's yeah. okay. There's nothing wrong with 
with it. Taken in the grander scheme of things, you know, I've said before, I don't think this was the right move for Spider-Man, for the strip, or the character. But it was done, and Michelini did as good a job as he could have been expected to do, considering this was handed down to him as an edict from Jim Shooter to tie into a plot Stan Lee was doing in the newspaper strip. So not even another comic. Yeah. The newspaper strip. The art is burly adequate. There are flashes of John Jr. here, some good panels, but it's hindered by Vinnie Coletta's oppressive and unsuitable inks. Considering the importance of this issue, or the importance that it once had, mm. not so much anymore, uh, where were Klaus Janssen or Bob Layton or Dan Green or any other number of inkers that could have complimented Junior's art? they kind of all been busy. <laughs> what did you think? I don't know. Excellent. Good. It, no, because like you said, it was full of moments. Yeah, it's full of great character moments, but great character moments do not a story make. But I just felt bored reading it. It's Peter moping. Oh, I didn't think he was as mopey in this. I thought he was quite optimistic in this. He was a bit, oh, where's my microscope? And then he does something about it. Yeah. So I didn't get that he was mopey. I, I did get that he was a bit downbeat. Yeah. See, he's moping around a spider at the beginning and then the funny bit where he breaks the steam thing and the police officer comes up. And then he goes to MJ and he starts moping around and she says, well, go to your Aunt May. So he goes to his Aunt May and he's all mopey, but <laughs> she's all, cough, cough, I've got the cold and we're all well. We let's just hope it kills you this time. Because <laughs> yeah, that is comic book shorthand for I am going to die. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the I thought she was kind of, um, oh, I'm so ill. And I can't go out and have fun because I've also got to pay the bills, Peter. Oh, and, and don't go and get married and leave me, Peter. <laughs> I've got dead people in my basement. I'm going to die and I need to pay the bills and you've got $40, Peter. Cough, cough. <laughs> <laughs> and if you could give Nathan a hang with those big bags, that would be great. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oddly, nothing ever came about me having a cough. You'd think that was subplot for yeah, Doom, yeah. wasn't it? But nothing ever happened, no. Yeah, all right, I can see your point. I like the bullpen bulletins line, Conan quote, I am the man you do not want to see. Uh, I also like the bit at the end as well. Whoa. What, the advert for the Punisher? No, no, well, Mary Jane is is, is in a bit of a rush panic. And to she's get somewhere, yeah. To get somewhere. And Peter just completely ignores her. Yeah, forget what you are, woman. I, I'm more important here. I am here. Attend me. <laughs> And you're like, no. Yeah. Uh, yeah, there's a good advert for the Punisher. If you're guilty, you're dead. So that's what Klaus Janssen was busy doing. Yeah, Klaus Janssen was busy doing the Punisher. There you go, I've answered that question. And uh, the Justice League... Oh, no, it was in the other comic, the Justice League. Yeah. The Giffen de Matthias, I've skipped an issue. House 2, the second story, which I've never seen. I've only ever seen House 1, okay. which I liked a great deal. Are these stories about the houses on the street? Uh, I think so, yeah. It's always the same house, I think. Oh, okay. William Katz in the first one. Greatest American hero. Never seen the second So that one didn't do out for you, then? No. No. The it's, cover it's, was better than the inside story. It's largely... An, well, the cover makes it look like he's grabbing hold of her arms and saying, It's your kids, Mary Jane! <laughs> Something's got to be done about your kids! Yeah. Um, your yeah, kids it was, are going to be killed with the radioactive sperm. Yeah, it was... <laughs> dear God. <laughs> no. it was, uh, yeah, it was all right, wasn't it? Wasn't, yeah. wasn't, wasn't bad. By 1987, the X-Men were a franchise. The Uncanny X-Men, X-Factor, and the New Mutants may have only been three monthly titles, but there were miniseries like X-Men vs. the Avengers, and X-Men vs. the Fantastic Four, and X-Men vs. Tooth Plaque, and I've made that last one up. <laughs> and they appeared in an issue of Mephisto vs. 
Fallen Angels was another mini from this year that featured X-Men characters. There was a reprint title, classic X-Men, featuring the John Byrne material, and an official guide to the X-Men, plus the X-Men vs. Alcoholism, the X-Men vs. Depression, and the X-Men vs. Pick a cause here. The X-Men vs. Godzilla would be awesome! And the X-Men vs. Godzilla would be brilliant. It would, yeah. Yeah, I would love that. (laughs) Story-wise, Chris Claremont steered the ship, although X-Factor and New Mutants were being written by Louise Simonson. There was a little stagnation with changes happening thick and fast, and this year saw the beginning of what would become a tradition, the family title crossover. For those who are not aware, this is a storyline that involves only the core characters in a family of comics. Craven's Last Hunt was a single storyline that ran through all of the Spider-Man books to critical and commercial success, and now it was the X-Men's turn with the fall of the mutants, a nine-part arc that ran through all three X-Men books. It follows other events like Mutant Massacre, a non-crossover really, and it's the same here. Clermont kind of ignores what's going on elsewhere to tell his own stories. The first part appeared in Uncanny X-Men issue 225, released in September of 1987. Various X-Men, some recognisable, some not, fight enemies, some recognisable, some not. I have to say I've never been a big fan of Mark Silvestri, and I'm still not, so that kind of colours how I feel about the cover. Bizarre, right? Yeah. There's nothing particularly dynamic or interesting in it. There is no all is lost moment. There's not a Wolverine in the sewers or anything like that. It's just pretty boring. Yes. It's incoherent as well. Yeah. There's no flow or your eye doesn't... There's nothing for you to look at other than people posing. Yeah. It's the beginning of the 90s. And they're not even posing in a well-constructed way. Do you like Mark Silvestri's stuff? I do. Oh, right. Okay. But... I like him But you as, don't like Paul Smith, so... I, I like Silvestri as a not-Jim Lee. If you can't get Jim Lee, Silvestri's second best. Uh, well, I've got one of those notes later. I, I don't know who came first, so I don't know if Lee mimicked Silvestri or Silvestri mimicked Lee, or yeah. were they both from the same studio, or what. But there is a lot of Jim Lee in Mike Silvestri's stuff without be, it being as good mm. as what Jim Lee does. False Dawn was written by Clermont with, uh, by Silvestri and Dan Green. In Scotland, Colossus ponders what it all means as he sketches. Some local kids join in and the discussion turns to mutants. Colossus, in human form, is delighted the kids aren't bigots, but pretty soon the ugly face of humanity shows up as one kid proclaims mutants to be scum. The kids fight and Colossus breaks them up, but a firecracker is thrown, causing him to change to his armoured form, freaking even the mutant-liking kids out. Colossus is reminded of his lot in life. Colossus realises that he is stuck in his Colossus form and quickly calls his sister Ilyana, and she teleports them both to the X-Men in Dallas. The X-Men, a reasonably new team of, are searching for Storm in one of Forge's old apartments. The many booby traps he has take out Wolverine for a spell, but unfortunately this is just when Freedom Force attack. The Blob pins Wolverine down by sitting on him, which is quite unpleasant if the Blob chooses that moment to fart, and the rest of Freedom Force, with the likes of Mystique, Spiral and so forth, take on the X-Men. It's a fair fight for the most part, but Freedom Force start to lose it a little when Destiny freaks out due to a vision of reality being torn asunder. Wolverine sticks his claws up the Blob's ass, causing him to leap up in pain, and Colossus punches him out. Before more fighting can break out, the sky tours and destiny foretells a moment in the time stream so important it overwhelms all else. Wow. Very dramatic. Second Dallas reference in one show, the Scottish kid asks Peter where he's from, as his accent doesn't sound like G.R. Ewing or Max Headroom. 
Yeah. Didn't Max Headroom have a Canadian accent? Is Matt Frew not Canadian? I don't know. He always sounded a bit Canadian. So, well, to, to us UK peeps, are Canadian and, and US not the same thing? Yeah. Yeah. Totes. Totes. All those Canadian listeners are emailing in now to say, We are not the same thing! I, I, I'm, I'm aware they're two different things. <laughs> 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 we love our Canadian brethren. They're colonial brothers. Yes. Commonwealth brothers, not colonial brothers. That's what I meant. Anyway, uh, the graffiti on the walls always worth checking out in a comic book. Uh, here there's a plug for the band The Mekons. Hopi and Maggot. I've no idea who they are. And uh, Oz 100th, which I presume means that this is letter of Tom Ozichowski's 100th issue. Yeah. I presume that. I yes. didn't go back and count them. Is there no Zurina graffitied on the streets? There is no Zurina, sadly. Would that have made you a death? It would have. Zurin yeah. written on the walls. Alright. It's in you Scotland. Can, you so can go and. Yeah. yeah. So, so Morris, right, Morrison did it. Morrison's graffiti in all of Edinburgh. You can, you can write it on there if you want. It's only an essential volume. It's not worth anything. I, I know. It makes you feel happy. I mean, they're still printing them, aren't they? The, the, I know they don't do these anymore. I know. They don't. No, they've sacrificed them to the altar of colour. Okay, which, yeah. Which is sad. Uh, this only seems actually quite touching. Colossus comes across as a normal guy wanting a normal life. I never really thought of Peter Rasputin as a glory hound, and he always seemed the one most likely to want to leave the X-Men if he could. The young boy who idolised the picture of Colossus becoming frightened when confronted by the real thing was actually quite quite heartbreaking. Yeah, I, I really like this opening bit. Oh, much I did. better than the rest of the issue. Ditto. Yeah. Oh, the rest of the issue was meh. I quite liked them, uh, the wee Scottish lads. Yeah, they were good, weren't they? Yeah. I love that Clermont writes his dialogue yeah, in yeah. accents. And, and I read it in, in a Morrison voice. Did, well. you, did you read it in Grant Morrison? In your Morrison voice. Oh, well, okay. well, my Grant Morrison voice is the only Grant Morrison voice. It is, voice, yeah. Obviously. All of this ignores that the mutant hating kids threw a firework at that what they thought was an innocent man. Mm. So who's the jerk there, then? Yeah. You know. It's a good job that Colossus was the character that opened this issue, as with the exception of Wolverine and Storm, this is a completely different team who I barely recognised. Yeah. I'm like, oh, is that Havoc? Yeah, I knew that was Havoc. And who's, is that still Rogue? We're in the 80s... Uh, yeah. Disc, not Disco. What's it called when they go to the gym a lot? Mm, don't know. Wearing the 80s gym stuff. That's what she's wearing, is it isn't it? a leotard? Yeah, the 80s leotard and crop top and pixie boots. Yeah. And I don't know who the others are. One of them's Dazzler. Oh, yeah, oh, Dazzler's no. gone punk, hasn't she? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Dazzler went punk in the 80s. Yeah. And then the 70s, she was disco. She was a girl who was ahead of the curve, wasn't <laughs> <laughs> she? Or, or they could call her Bandwagon Girl. <laughs> bandwagon Jumper. That's the next song. Yeah. That's the new single, Bandwagon Jumper. <laughs> oh, that was the name of her autobiography. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I like that. That's pretty good. Uh, the blob jumping on Wolverine and it taking the form of a sound effect was absolutely genius. Yeah. That was fantastic. And I love his face when he just sat there, arms folded, yeah. and he sat on Wolverine, and you've just got the impression that Wolverine's stuck in the crack of his ass. <laughs> I think the facial expressions in the three pages where he reacts to Wolverine are the best. <laughs> well, where Wolverine sticks his claws yeah. up his the entire chalky time, starfish. The entire time I sat there going, well, why doesn't Wolverine just claw him? Why doesn't Wolverine just claw him? And then, and then he did. Uh, but, it was funny. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Treated seriously though, Wolverine's just, you know, shanked 
Oh, Colossus, uh, the blob's ass. You don't want to sniff those claws after that, do you? He's, you know, he's just reacted as though he sat on the thumbtack, but in reality, you know, he's oh! just shanked right up there. Oh, dear me. Yeah, Wolverine getting out of that is brilliant. And Colossus <laughs> punching him as he comes back to land. Yeah, yeah. Was absolute genius. But really, for the first time, I felt kind of lost. Yeah. As to what was going on here. Um, Clomont's script is still good. So it's quite easy to enjoy the story without worrying too much about what's actually going on. Because mm. I didn't have a clue. It's the mutant angst, the humour and the character moments are finally blended as usual, but this story fills in no real gaps. And unusually for Clermont, it didn't have any subplots. It was a rather straightforward, we begin here, we end here story, wasn't it? Yeah. It started and then it finished. Well, there was the chessboard stuff. Yeah, yeah, I suppose so. But that was tying into the main plot of um, Fall of the Mutants. Yeah. There wasn't no cutting over to Cyclops and no cutting over to Professor X, that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Is what I meant. We didn't really get any of that. Sylvester's arts, I'm not that big a fan for reasons I can't pinpoint. I mean, he can draw and some of his facial expressions, like Michael points out, are really rather fun. But, you know, my main problem is that it just didn't feel like a story here. Mm. It felt like... There's there's a lot to read because it's Chris Claremont, but story wise, not a lot actually happened, and it felt completely different to the the X books we've covered. Yeah. In the sense that they were good, <laughs> yeah. And this was a bit convoluted and uninteresting, and I can't decide how much that was down to the art and how much was down to the fact that in the year that we've skipped over or the two years that we've skipped over, the book has completely changed, mm. and it's become something I didn't recognise anymore. But Superman's completely changed and has remained recognisable. Yeah, but it's it's still Superman. Whereas yeah. in this, the X-Men are a completely different bunch of X-Men. They're a, di- they're a team. Yeah, they're like a different that. team. And I don't know who any of them are. In yeah. relation to the... I mean, you know who Dazzler is. You know who Havoc is. Yeah. But how? why are these the X-Men now? What's going on? Mm. And it's it was the first time that I felt lost reading it. Yeah. As opposed to the other ones well, where I enjoyed them for the most part. Some of the other issues we covered were filling issues. Well, no, but they were still part of Clermont's X vision. Well, the Professor story... Xavier's a jerk was still an issue of X Men. Yeah, even but... though it was a standalone. Yeah, and the story one was a standalone. Mm. Whereas that's the first part of a nine-part crossover. Yeah. But even within the confines of that, surely you want the first part of a nine-part crossover to, you know, bring your readers in. But it's also the first part <coughs> of a nine-part crossover with other X X books as well. Oh, did you like it? I liked the Colossus bit. And yeah. I, just, I just lost all interest as soon as we... As soon as the fight started. Yeah. Yeah, I was kind of on the same page on this one. I was... And like I said, I can't decide whether it was the story of the art, but neither floated my boat. I liked the art. For me, it was the story. Right. Okay, fair enough. 1987, then, not a bad bunch of comics. No outright stinkers. No. By any means, the DC boots were stronger than Marvel showcasing the post-crisis universe, although Detective felt very retro, even though it was still fantastic. Mm. The X-Men was a little aimless, and Spider-Man was okay, not great. Looking at the year as a whole, DC was much stronger than Marvel, with the latter feeling like it was running out of steam, putting out too many titles, and maybe not as focused as they were previously. The post-crisis reboot had given DC a direction. Whether you like that direction or not, it was at least a direction. Mm -hmm. That about wraps it up for this week. Did you have a favourite this week? Uh, probably Detective. Can go with that. Yeah, actually. 
Yeah, I'd go with Detective. It was it's a tough call between Adventures of Superman and Detective. Yeah. But ultimately there was too many little niggles in Adventures of Superman. Too many this dialogue is god awful. Yeah. This is trying to be flirting, not working. Whereas Detective Whereas was Detective fun. was just fun. Yeah. Mm. Odd Ways Out was brilliant in Adventures. Next time an all new episode of Hey Kids Comics, it's the final part of our nineties eighties retrospective, covering nineteen eighty nine. Superman number 28 Batman 601 oh no we're not we're doing Detective Comics 601 Spider-Man 318 and X-Men 242 mm-hmm. give me a cute little 80s gag thing that I can say here that isn't gag me with a spoon that isn't gag me with a spoon which you seem to be very fond next of next week's episode will be out of time We've, oh, have we not already said that? I don't know. I don't know. We'll have it. Okay. I'm having it. I'm having that. Thank you all for joining us. We hope you enjoyed that issue of the show. Issue sword. Yes, that as well. See you next week. Bye bye. Goodbye. sound clips used in the show are copyright their respective copyright holders and are used for review and illustrative purposes only and no infringement is intended so don't send your phalanx of highly paid lawyers after us as we have no money. Certainly this show was not turned into a lucrative revenue stream as no money is made from this either which vexes us. The opinions of Michael and Andrew expressed in the show are the opinions of Michael and Andrew and no one else. They own them, cherish them and look after them but are probably not to be taken too seriously. New episodes drop every Thursday at twotruefreaks.com and we can be emailed directly at heykidscomics at virginmedia.com. We can also be friended on Facebook by using Hey Kids, all one word as the first name, and Comics as the surname. We do hope you enjoyed this episode of Hey Kids Comics.
Over the year, the man of steel's a pen. Yeah, boop, blah, beep, boop, beep, boop, boop, Called me a mindless philosopher, you overweight glob of grease. To be followed almost immediately by bye 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 Batman year two. Bye 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 Batman year two. Bye 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 Batman year two. Oh yeah, two. Give us Mask of the Phantasm. Anyway. A mechanic. A mechanic. Fuck off!